Hello everyone, thank you for joining me in In Conversation with Lisa Burke. And today, a very special interview, one with Jean-Claude Juncker. Jean-Claude Juncker's office overlooks the Guillefrau and the beauty of Luxembourg City's panoramic landscape beyond. With 38 years in politics, Jean-Claude Juncker's political panorama sweeps across changing European relationships and global events. He generously sat with me for an hour, unhurried, thoughtful, sincere and encyclopedic, and his answers remain uncut in this interview. For a man who enjoys the art of long-form reading, in response, I respect his long-form reply. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with a man who has been a pillar of European politics for decades. Jean-Claude Juncker, it's a privilege to have you with me on In Conversation with Lisa Berg. Thank you for joining us. For those listeners who may not know your CV, just to recap a small part of it, you joined the CSV party in 1974 and you've actively worked in politics since 1982, aged just 28. More recently, of course, you're President of the European Commission 2014 to 19, Prime Minister of Luxembourg 1995 to 2013. That's 18 years as Prime Minister of Luxembourg. And before that, Minister for Finance and Minister for Labour since about 1984. So that's 24 years in top jobs, and if you include the ministerial jobs, about 35 years. So my first question to you is, how has power changed you? I don't know. It's up to others to, to make an assessment uh, on the changes I had to suffer. I don't know uh, what these changes are, but there must have been uh, changes. And uh, the political life has changed a lot. When I was starting my political life, both in Luxembourg and in Brussels, it was less brutal. It has become more brutal and more unfair. Uh, the youngsters, those who are younger I am, I started everywhere being the youngest, now I'm more or less everywhere one of the oldest. The youngsters have less uh, attraction by uh, fans, that's, that's new. But Trump was not a youngster. What do you mean by politics becoming more brutal? Yeah, because the personal relations have, uh, have not improved, by the contrary, they went down in quality. Mainly as far as Europe is concerned, when I was starting back in 82 and, and so on and so forth, we had 10 member states and then uh, 12, then 15 and then with the newcomers from Central Europe, uh, a bigger number than that. At the beginning it was like a club atmosphere. Everyone knew everything about every well, children, family, health, hobbies. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, relations have become less intimate. The and relations between the country members? No, 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 no. Between ministers, I mean, between those uh, who are considering themselves as policy makers. There were less intimate relations between the policy makers because we are by far more numerous than we were in the 80s and, and 90s. So that's, that's a weakness because if you don't know the biography and the doings and uh, misdoings of the others, 
It's by far more difficult to, uh, to build uh, compromises because you don't know the actors you are uh, facing with the same intensity. So when we think about the European Union, in your time of course, in everybody's lifetime, it's grown and uh, looking at other interviews that you've given, you've spoken about yourself as part of the intergeneration from World War II to where we are today. And you've also said that now World War II isn't enough for the European Union to be glued together anymore. I mean, firstly, thinking back to your father's time and you as a little boy, can you recount any of those stories that made you feel the European Union was absolutely vital? Yeah, my father was a German soldier during World War II because the Nazis forced the young Luxembourgers born between 20 and 27 of the last century into the German army, into the Wehrmacht. So when I was a youngster, my father didn't uh, talk about his uh, wartime, uh, where he was together with three of his brothers, uh, incorporated in this awful German army, suffering a lot, having been moved to Russia, to former Yugoslavia, to Austria and other places, uh, having been important places during World War II. But he didn't want to tell me this in detail, because he didn't want me to suffer. Because if you are imagining your father being at war, this is a suffering for little boys. When I grew up, when I was 15, 16, 17, he started to explain me his youth. In fact, he, had, he hadn't a youth, because the youth was stolen by the German Reich. Very early, he took me to Germany, whereas others in his situation they didn't go to Germany until the end of the 80s, 90s. I was in Germany with my father in the 60s, uh, 70s, uh, visiting some of the places where he was uh, as a, uh, a soldier against his will, but he was uh, there. And uh, when I I'm referring to my own biography as being the one of an intergeneration, I'm pointing at an important uh, element, because my father I had experienced the war as my mother, she, my mother was in uh, Luxembourg. And those with whom I started my political life in Europe, they were the war generation. And then I was the youngest of the war generation, but I was not part of the war generation, but of the after-war uh, generation. And now those uh, having been born immediately after the Second World War, I was born in December of 54, they are disappearing slowly from the landscape. So the next generation of policymakers in Europe are running the risk to be blind when it comes to European history because they don't have a father who can tell them how it was. They don't have grandparents who can tell them uh, how it was. And so this is uh, to some extent a blind generation, meaning by there that they had uh, no witnesses who can tell them how things were. My father told me when I was young, 14, 15, 16, uh, things like that, he was describing me, I have to say, less in detail, but in general terms, the absence of Europe. What does it mean? What is the European continent without European integration? But now these experiences are disappearing. And as the young Europeans are not invaded by European history, they don't know European history. We have to make sure that, uh, as a legacy, they will uh, have the look into European history like the one we had.
Well, thinking about young people and the 2019 European elections, in fact, there was the greatest turnout ever. It was about 50% of EU citizens no. voted. So you are right in the sense that on the one hand we have a rising apathy, perhaps there's more divisions, we've seen that in American politics as well, some rising nationalism, obviously there's Brexit. But on the other hand, these 2019 European elections with the record turnout and just looking through some of the topics that were very important, obviously there was economy, but there was also climate change and the environment. There was promoting human rights and democracy, and then lots of protection, the protection of EU citizens, combating youth unemployment, protection of external borders, protection of food safety, protection of personal data. So still, it's obviously not talking about war apart from terrorism exactly, but there is an appetite for the grander European dreams in at least 50% of the citizens. And there was an uptake in votes from young people. So does that not give you some reason to be optimistic? No, I'm, I'm not pessimistic, but I don't have any kind of illusions. I never had illusions about Europe because you are losing the illusions immediately when you are creating your own uh, illusions. The uh, international dimension of uh, what is at stake is increasingly invading the European agenda because we are not as Europeans an island. But I don't know if all the Europeans, those who participate in the uh, uh, 2019 elections, are sharing the same dream. Because amongst these 50%, you have those who think that uh, the European Union is taking away from them this uh, freedom and liberty the European Union was invented for in Poland, in uh, the Czech Republic, in Hungary. A majority of people are thinking that uh, the European Union is uh, like another Soviet uh, Union who is taking over the uh, commandership in uh, Europe, whereas the contrary is exactly the case. So when you are saying European dreams, yes, okay, but these 50% don't have the same European dream. But beyond these numbers, you have uh, this general feeling on the European continent that we should not go back to what uh, was at the origin of the European disasters we have experienced during the 20th century. This is a, a strong remaining element, even amongst the youngsters. They don't know exactly how it was, but they know that it was not good, that it was bad, mainly for ordinary people. Because ordinary people, weak people, they are always the victims of uh, European disagreements, disunions, disputes. So I'm, I'm not pessimistic at all, but I'm not over-optimistic neither. So when you think about your vision for the European Union, you spoke about its origin in your experience of it being this club with just 10 member states and you knew each other's families and health issues and life. What is the ideal size for Europe? What's your best definition of a European Union? I don't think that the European Union has a, an ideal size. Because, as I told you, when I was starting, we had 10 member states, then 12, then 15, and then 24, and 26, and 27. Is this the ideal size? I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's the size of the European Union as it is and like it is uh, till now. There are no uh, theoretical and scientifically uh, accepted uh, size models for the European Union because those who are not in they want to become member states. One member, having been in Britain, 
wants to leave and is uh, leaving. So I think that uh, the direction of history is to have a bigger number of uh, European states being members of the European Union, but in order to absorb them in a proper way, we have uh, to change uh, the way of the decision-making processes in, in Europe. We have to change uh, the treaty because we have to vote in more than is the case now by qualified majority, although in uh, more or less all the relevant political domains, European Union ministers are voting by qualified majority with co-decision of the European Parliament. But as far as foreign policy is concerned, we are blocked by the principle of unanimity, which is preventing the European Union from speaking with one voice. If a member state, a small or a big one, is blocking the decision, uh, then we are unable to give our assessment on what is happening internationally. I'll give you one example. We had several times meetings of the European Commission for Human Rights, UN located based in Geneva. The point on the agenda was human rights in China. We were unable to uh, give our point of view because Greece was blocking the uh, decision. Why was Greece blocking the decision? Not because the Greeks would be by far more crazy than all the others. That's not the case. They are in several domains by far more intelligent than others in, in Europe. But the reason was that China during that time was investing in the Greek ports. What the Europeans could have done, but they did not do it because they had no trust whatsoever in Greece. This is an example showing that if you are sticking to unanimity, you are blocked by unanimity. We should be able to decide by qualified majority in the field of foreign policy. That's of the essence if the European Union wants to play an international role. And so how can that be changed? The treaty in fact has not to be changed because there is a provision in the treaty saying that the European Council, but by unanimity, can decide that in the future, in different domains like foreign affairs, the European Union uh, can decide by qualified majority, but we are far from this push of common sense. But going back to that example then of the Chinese paying for the ports to be built in Greece at a time when Europe didn't want to invest in Greece, and I can imagine it was an economic reason yeah. why, yeah. that would have left Greece in a very awkward position. That it would have left Greece in a very awkward position being pulled. No, no but the, the Europeans are, are not really reacting to events of that uh, kind. The opposition in China is very much reacting to that, but the Europeans, they are dealing with these questions with a kind of benign uh, neglect. But if the European Council and the Council of Ministers would vote by qualified majority in the domain of foreign affairs may be that the awareness of the role the European Union could play because it is supposed to, to play a bigger role in the national affairs, the awareness would increase. I think that's very interesting because then perhaps the European Union could be a bigger superpower to be on the same platform mm. perhaps as the US or China no. as a vocal spokesperson. But I don't want the European Union to become a superpower. That would be meaningless because uh, the European Union is uh, not a military power. And I don't want the European Union to become a big military power because I'm 
a fan of uh, the so-called soft diplomacy, which includes, by the way, that we should increase our defense efforts. That's what is happening for the time being, because my commission was launching this European Defense Fund and um, things like, uh, uh, like that. But I think that we have to find a place between the real big powers. There were only two big powers, China and uh, the US. Russia is no longer a big power, but I would never say like Obama unfortunately did, to describe Russia as a, a regional power. Russia is more than a regional power, it's a big power. And we should treat Russia as we have to treat big powers, but um, we have to find a place between the US and uh, China marginally, although it's very important with uh, Russia. But this place will always be characterized by a more immediate relation with the US than with China. We are allies of the US, we are not allies of uh, China. We are partners of China, but China is uh, one of our main competitors when it comes to uh, economy and to trade. But when it comes to trade, the US are also a big and challenging competitor. So these things are not uh, easy, but whenever I was traveling to Asia, to Africa, to other parts of the world, I liked the way these continents, these countries and the public opinions in these Asian and African countries were looking at Europe, because in these parts of the world, Europe is seen like something extraordinary, because people are considering at the other side of the globe, the European Union as a big success, whereas in Europe we are crying because we are not feeling always at ease in the European Union and on the European continent. But they know that we are better because we learned the lessons of history than others in the world. But they know something the Europeans do ignore consistently. There is something others in the world know, which and what uh, the Europeans are consistently ignoring. The European continent is the smallest continent. Nobody knows that in Europe. Because we still think that we are the masters of the world. We are not. We have never been. And when someone in Europe tried to become the master of the world, it was a total disaster and a total failure. The European uh, continent, from a demographic point of view, is very weak. At the beginning of the 20th century, 25% of uh, the world population was European. Now we are 5-6%. By the end of the century, there will be four Europeans out of 100 inhabitants uh, of the world. So this is changing the relations and policy makers, those who are in charge of the European future, they have to know as we are small and, and as we are demographically more than very weak, we have to cooperate in the best way possible. We are too small and we are not numerous enough to uh, play splendid isolation inspired roles nation by nation, all taken together. European nations can change the world to its best, but taken one by one, even the most important, Germany, France and others, they are too weak to have any kind of influence when it comes to world affairs.
But when you talk about the other continents, when I think of Africa, for example, it's not a cohesive voice either there, even though it no, might no, be no. very populous and increasingly populated, along with the Middle East I can think of, they are also not talking with one voice. No, but that's of less importance, you know. The more others are speaking, without having a single expression of views, the better it is for Europe if the European Union is uh, integrating all the uh, nuances of the different European countries in order to uh, build up one single uh, opinion formation. Uh, Africa, that's 54 countries. They are very different. Geographically, historically, you have those who have been colonies, you have those who have never been colonies, you have those who till today are suffering from an arbitrary drawing up of uh, borders, which is the legacy of Europe on the, on the African continent. The European legacy in Africa has not to be admired. It was even today a total uh, failure. But all these nations, democracies, uh, even dictators, I don't like dictators, but they are they are there, they are considering that the European Union has a role to play, including in Africa. And in fact, I was trying this during my mandate as a president of the Commission to, to give more help to uh, Africa, to try to create uh, jobs in Africa, to try to convince European companies to invest in Africa in order to uh, avoid this uh, dramatic uh, flow of migrants, illegal migrants, to Europe. We had some successes, but it's uh, nevertheless not, not uh, convincing at all. We have uh, tripled uh, the money shipped to Africa, but I was always uh, defending myself and others against this stupid approach of uh, Dealing with Africa, of course, they are our brothers and they are our cousins, like the rich men from the European continent, giving money and telling them how to do. That's not the way. We have to respect in their own dignity the African uh, nations. And we, we, we didn't do that during uh, the decades after the Second World War. They have to be treated on equal foot. We are not more intelligent than the Africans. And they know it. We don't know it, but they know it. And they are right to know it. And when you were trying to um, create these jobs for the Africans, actually one of the things that has been spoken about for the 2019 elections is the rising youth unemployment. And in fact, right now with this COVID situation, unemployment, let's just think about Europe, it is rising. So how can you tackle that? Because yeah, that's, that's, uh, it has to be reminded and remembered that youth unemployment is not a new phenomenon uh, on the European continent. When I was a young Minister of Labour, we had a higher unemployment than the one we have now. And we had even higher unemploy youth unemployment. We had before In the Corona. Quite, no, 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 on the European level. On the European level. When I'm listening to the uh, speeches and interventions of those who are in Europe younger than me, they are reminding me the speeches I heard and I was pronouncing myself in the 80s. These are exactly the same. We brought down 
between 2014 and 2019 the unemployment in a rather dramatic way. When I left Brussels as president of the commission, the unemployment was the lowest we have ever experienced in Europe since World War II. And even the youth unemployment went down. Not enough, but it went down. Now the figures are moving to the uh, upside, uh, given the economic crisis entailed by the corona crisis. This is a serious uh, problem. It has to be uh, treated like a serious problem. But the day will come when the corona crisis uh, will have lost uh, vigor and negative strength and then the employment will go up. It's not a consolation for those who are unemployed for the time being, so we have to put into place active employment uh, policies. That's what the governments are doing. The uh, recovery plan the European Union was developing over the last month is partly directed in that uh, uh, direction, but it's not a new phenomenon. There was some Young people like you are considering that this is new. I can tell you, it's not new. <laughs> it's dramatic, but it's not new. <laughs> no, I've, I've seen unemployment rates in different countries as well. But thinking about COVID, there was some criticism of the EU not acting as one voice, one body yeah. across countries. What have you got to say on that matter? Yeah, but I, I think that those who are criticizing this, they are right in their analysis. Uh, because at the very beginning of the corona crisis, back in March, uh, April, the European Union and thus the European Commission were not active enough and were not uh, fiercely fighting the consequences of uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis. But this is explainable, although not acceptable, because the European Union and thus the European Commission, they don't have any kind of competencies in the domain of public health. I remember perfectly well that in 2003 and 2004 when we were preparing the so-called European Constitution, GISCAS Convention, uh, my then Luxembourg government proposed to give more competencies to the European Union in the public health uh, sector. This was refused by more than the majority of governments, mainly by the Germans, by the way, and by the British anyway, because they did uh, refuse whatever was proposed when it came to the preparation of the European future. And um, as the European Union had no power, the European Union could not react. And so member states, they were referring to what they know, that means the national health system, including national health borders, which was a pity and a setback for the European Union and the internal market. But now things have improved. The Commission is becoming more and more proactive, uh, mainly when it comes to uh, the vaccination of uh, the European population, although a growing number of Europeans are refusing any kind of uh, vaccines and vaccination, which is totally ununderstandable for those who are living through the infections created by non-vaccination in other parts of the world. But now the Commission is uh, doing better. But uh, the Commission and the European Union could improve uh, the way they are coordinating their national uh, efforts 
a lot has uh, still to be done. And just thinking about another consequence of COVID, it's the debt. So we're sitting in a world where there's trillions of dollars or euros or yen of debt per capita. And there's some very interesting, amazing graphics out there where you can see this entangled web of debt between the EU countries. So you have this, you know, ex-ministerial role for finance and PM president of the EU. So how do you explain to us how the euro can be stable when we've got this increasing web of debt under our feet? I think that the high level of public indebtedness public debt is without alternative. As we are facing dramatic consequences entailed by the uh, coronavirus and by the uh, slowing down of uh, the global economy and of uh, the European economy in particular, uh, we have uh, to put at the disposal of the European Union more money which is not covered by revenues, by fiscal and tax uh, revenues. When I was chair of the Eurogroup, I proposed back in 2009 or 10 Eurobonds. Euro countries were rejecting these, mainly Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, uh, Slovenia, Slovakia, all the users, suspects, Finland. But now it's there. And I think this is the right uh, choice because we have to invest money. But if we are not taking into attention the needed best use of this money, then it will lead us to disastrous consequences. I'm not a friend of public debt. During my time as President of the Commission, we reduced the uh, yearly deficit from 6.2 to 0.5. 6.2 in 2013, 0.7 in 2019, and then it went up given the uh, corona uh, crisis and the fight against the consequences and it had to be done. So I'm, but I'm not a fan of public debt. I, I think it's like a poison. We should be uh, handle this very carefully. I was referring to the use of public debt. If the public debt is not used like helicopter money, spread like this, free beer for everyone, dedicated to uh, nothing future-oriented, then it will be a total disaster. But if this money is dedicated to uh, structural reforms, to uh, public investments in the health sector and uh, in uh, public and private uh, research, in defense, in Erasmus program, unfortunately the European Council was reducing the money I had proposed for the Erasmus program, which is a total it's totally ununderstandable, but if this money is used in the way I'm describing it, in a future-oriented way, then this is, how could I say, a good and sound debt. But if it is distributed like that, in an arbitrary way, then the next generations will suffer from uh, the mistakes this generation is making. The CSV president, Frank Engels, actually made some remarks about this against the party line about how to repay that debt for Luxembourg. I think he said wealth should be taxed more to refinance budget deficits due to coronavirus. What do you think about his words? Well, I think that if the government, any government in Luxembourg, is spending the money in the best way possible, in the way I was minutes ago describing, then we can afford this 
for Luxembourg's circumstances, high level of public debt, if it is uh, distributed in an unsound uh, way, then that's a different thing. But I'm not against the idea of uh, discovering new sources of revenues. I'm not against that, but it has to be prepared in a careful uh, way if uh, the measures some of uh, my fellow party members are proposing, if this is done in a badly prepared way, then it will add to the uncertainty. But if it is done in an atmosphere of general consensus, then that would be okay. But uh, I don't see this general consensus uh, arriving at the horizon. But it's just when you look at these graphics and you see how France is borrowing from here or lending there and everybody's got this kind of imbalance of debt versus what they're borrowing and it's all interwoven, that creates a potential crisis for the euro. Yeah, but I don't think that we will experience another deep crisis of the euro era. I don't think this because people are conscious that we are living in extraordinary time and that we have not only to fight the consequences of the uh, coronavirus, but also the uncertainties surrounding in the very context of uh, the COVID-19 events. But the fact is that those countries who had consolidated their public finances over the last uh, five, ten years, they are in a better situation than those countries who haven't done that France being an example, Italy being an example, others being examples uh, for that because uh, countries like uh, Germany, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, over a long period, uh, independently from the governments uh, in those countries, they have uh, uh, run a very serious, no-nonsense public finances policy and they have a larger, a vaster margin of maneuver to be fertilized in order to react against uh, the consequences of uh, the coronavirus. Once again, it is proven, more or less scientifically, that if you are serious in good times, you can be less serious in bad times. If you are not serious in good times, if you have public finances developing into the direction of budgetary deficits and into the direction of an increased public debt, then you are without any kind of weapons if weapons are needed. I'm actually thinking about Luxembourg now. I'm thinking about trying to be serious when we've got the Luxembourg house prices going astronomically high. No. What do you think about that? I was saying back in 2000, and I don't remember, eight, nine, that my biggest failure in lux in domestic policy was the development of house prices and i was heavily attacked by those who are in government now they are as weak as i was what did they say uh, during that time they were concentrating their criticism on the fact that uh, i was not successful in that domain but i'm not criticizing them because they would be uh, they wouldn't be successful now they are not because I know how difficult this matter is. And what do you think is the best solution? I made my proposal when I was uh, uh, in office. I won't repeat them because this would be immediately seen as a heavy criticism against the government. 
Okay, well, for our viewers who may not have known what you've said back no, no. then, no, no. we'll refer to the archives there. Read your classics. <laughs> read the younger classics. You can add that as a chapter in your book. Um, thinking about the media, what do you think about power balance when it comes to politicians and media? Uh, that's a, a, uh, a question. In, in, in fact, I was never interested. The media are doing their job, the policy makers are doing their job. It's not the duty of policy makers to convince uh, the uh, public opinion, thus the press. And it's not uh, the duty of the press to convince politicians. These are intimately related, uh, separate worlds. And I have the highest respect for, for the separate. respect. But, uh, I, I, I don't think they're entirely no, no, separate. No, I, I didn't say that. I said they are intimately separated, although having to play a different role. But uh, I am uh, a fan of print paper. I'm reading papers because uh, newspapers printed in paper, they are going to the substance. They have time to explain things. They have time to compare between what is now and between what was in, in former times. Whereas the so-called social media, including TV, which is a kind of social media, they don't have time to uh, give the necessary room to deep analysis. Uh, they are functioning by inventing new slogans day after day. These are headline media distinguishing themselves from the seriousness of the uh, printed newspapers. So I, I, I was never following this uh, social media. They have influence, but I don't want to be influenced by them. If I'm reading on social media that I'm a gangster, that I'm corrupt, that I'm a drinker, why should I read this day after day? There is no need for doing so. And if you are reacting to this, you are not reacting to the real problem, but because the real problem is elsewhere than in the social media. And compare the language used in the social media with the language used in uh, the newspapers and the radio programs. I'm a fan, of, I'm listening radio, I'm, I'm not watching TV around the day. The language is important and the language used by social media is very often discussed. Which languages, given that you're multilingual, do you like to read in or listen to the radio in? I'm, I'm listening to uh, German radio, Deutschlandfunk, which is the best uh, radio station. I'm listening to German radios. They are excellent. Not all of them, but the main radio uh, stations are, and programs are excellent. I'm listening to French radio, public channels. They are excellent. I'm watching TV channels. Only a minority of people are, it seems, watching these permanent information channels, which are neighboring and coming nearer and nearer to social uh, media, but there are excellent uh, news channels. And so you weren't a fan of Trump's tweeting then? I never, I was never reading Trump's uh, tweets, never. Even not those concerning me. I, I, I have never looked at tweets. Why should I read the tweets of others? You have a tweet account. No, I, I had one in, uh, in uh, Brussels. Yes. But I was not furnishing this tweet account. My, my <laughs> press people did it. And I, I had no kind of interest when it came 
to my own tweets. Well, it's just a way of quickly engaging with the citizens that you're serving, effectively. You cannot explain politics in uh, a few number of lines. That's not possible. How can you explain the relation between China and Russia in a tweet of, I don't know how many lines? It's not possible. Don't try it. You can give a it flavor. Is all the no, no, no. Uh, politics are more important than flavors. I've got a few questions here now from people who've written in on social yeah. media. <laughs> um, they're uh, moving around a little bit. So uh, Pierre Mario Lupino, who's a PhD candidate in banking and finance law at the University of Luxembourg, asks, will the Juncker plans have a legacy in the post-pandemic scenario? I do hope so. The Juncker plan generated investments uh, of 598 billions. That's very close to this 750 billion recovery plan. And we engaged only small budgetary uh, figures, 48 or something like that. No, no, no. And I, I was launching this Juncker plan because when I arrived in Brussels, the public and private investment, but mainly the public investment in Europe, was down to more or less zero. The unemployment was growing week after week. And so I said to myself and to the European Parliament and to others that uh, we have to relaunch the economy, the European economy and the investments, not by using public money like that, but by inventing new financial instruments, what we did. So now the EU investment plan is launched. It was uh, inaugurated by my own commission and it's now translated in reality by the now uh, Commission, and it's exactly uh, the same. It's about 688 billion invested uh, euros, so there is more than a legacy. It's a pursuit of wisdom. <laughs> well, let's hope that continues. It's nice to have a yeah. legacy. <laughs> Bernard Marx from Greenwave Plastics asks, how will member state leaders speed up the required transition to a more circular economy? and slow down climate change with the learnings from the COVID-19 pandemic? This is uh, an important issue because when we were in the middle of the so-called Euro crisis, which was never a Euro crisis but a crisis of a national public debt, I was always saying that after the Euro crisis, the climate crisis would still be there. And now I have to say that after the Corona crisis, the climate crisis will still be there. The Commission has proposed to the European Parliament and to the European Council intermediary stages uh, how to reduce the CO2 emissions. And I think that the European Union has to be the world leader in that respect. Fortunately, the new American administration will rejoin the uh, Paris uh, Climate uh, Agreement so Brazil and others will be more and more isolated. No, I, I think that uh, the fight against climate change has, has a little bit been overshadowed by the corona crisis, but it has to be taken very seriously, and it is very seriously taken by the Commission and by other uh, policymakers. Achim Schumacher asks, why is Article 5.5 of Resolution 2079 still not implemented in Luxembourg? Why is equal shared parenting not the legal default? That's a question for the Luxembourg government. I don't want to interfere in domestic politics. Uh, Keith Hale asks how President Biden will change the US-EU relationship. I don't think that we are going back the day Biden 
Joe Biden, I, I know him very well because we had very good relations over the last 12 years. I don't think that we are going back to good old times. That's, that's over, Tempe Passati. Uh, but I think that he has a better understanding of uh, Europe. I know his uh, views on the European Union. I knew the views Donald Trump had on the European Union. Trump always considered that the European Union is an invention against the predominance economically and politically of the US. This was never the case, but Biden knows the world better. He's better prepared for international policy, for diplomacy, and he knows um, the European Union and the different countries. He knows where Luxembourg is located. <laughs> Do you really think that uh, Trump knew it? I had to explain him where Lo Luxembourg is located, but that's not, uh, I'm, I'm not criticizing. US citizens that they don't know the European geography because the Europeans don't know the American geography. Is there a European, are there Europeans in, in a big number to point immediately at Ohio, at Michigan, at Delaware, at the state of Washington? No. So let's not be surprised that in other parts of the world the European Union, the smallest continent of the world, is less well known. We think and we would, but the atmosphere will change. And that's important because Biden is considering European nations, those who are in NATO, as uh, the allies of the Americans and not as the vessels and the slaves of the Americans. And how do you think he's going to treat uh, Britain? You know, probably less friendly than uh, Donald Trump used to treat Britain because Trump was very much in favor of Brexit. When I was asking why, why is this a point of uh, policy making for you, I was rather surprised because he was in favor of Brexit because he thought that Brexit would weaken the European Union, as Brexit will weaken the European Union, because this is an historic mistake and an historic tragedy, the fact that the British are leaving the European uh, Union, as uh, Biden knows that um, uh, the leave of Britain uh, is uh, to the disadvantage of the European Union and thus to the European stability, he will be less uh, trade agreement with, uh, friendly with Britain than Trump was. We'll see how that plays out. And the final question from Edgar Kraskowski, I hope I've pronounced his surname correctly. He asks, do you think you'll ever be able to kiss as many people on the cheek again or if we've entered the post-cheek-kissing era of humankind? You know, I, I used to embrace half of the humankind. And the other 50%, they were kissing me. So as an average, this gives 100%. So it's unaffordable for others. <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely loved by all. Uh, I don't know. Jean-Claude Juncker, it's been a pleasure to talk yeah. to you. Is there anything else you would like no, to no. say to it our audience? My it was my pleasure. We look Thank forward you. to your, your yeah. memoirs of your time yeah. in Brussels okay. whenever they're due. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks. Thank thanks you. for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.